we're going to turn now back to the proclaiming of God's Word. We've been studying the gospel according to John, and if you've been with us for a while, you've noticed that certain episodes happen regularly. Jesus performs a miracle. John calls them signs. And after Jesus performs the sign, there's this lengthy conversation between Jesus and a group of people about what has just happened. Well, in this passage that we have before us today, we have something similar. We've seen Jesus transform water into wine. We've seen him feed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We've seen him heal a paralytic. Jesus performs another miraculous healing in this passage, but there is something different about this one, something that sets it apart from all the other signs that we've seen so far. I want to see if you can pick it out. Let's listen as we read John 9, verses 1 through 12. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us. Oh God, this morning as we come to your word, uh, we recognize that what Jesus is interacting with here is a hard thing for us to talk about. Suffering is not easy for us to talk about. It's hard for us to receive any kind of wisdom. It's easy for us to feel alone in it. And so I pray this morning that you would be gentle with us, that you would send your spirit to comfort us. Help us hear the words of Jesus and sense the words of life. Help us to turn to you. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. When was the last time that you experienced orthostatic hypotension? That's the fancy name for what happens when you stand up too quickly and you get lightheaded. Usually for me, it happens when I've been playing on the ground with my girls, maybe a board game sitting on the ground or cards, or we're wrestling, they're jumping all over me, and I go to stand up, and something happens. Simultaneously, darkness shoots in my eyes, and also stars, flashing lights, and I get kind of wobbly, and I'm trying to reach for something to grab, and the girls think it's hilarious because I look so silly, especially when I have to then sit back down on the ground. They think it's hilarious, but In truth, as you probably know if you've experienced it, it can be terrifying. 
even if just momentarily so, all of a sudden you cannot see anymore. The same kind of thing can happen to our hearts when something abrupt or stressful happens in our lives. Maybe you've been uh, talking with someone and they just are kind of looking off into the distance, or maybe they're looking at you, but they're really looking past you, not listening at all, only to find out that they just lost their job or a relative of theirs has gone into the hospital, or maybe their roommates told them they needed to find a new place to live. Suddenly, they're entering into some suffering in their lives, and it's changed the way that they engage with reality. Now, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to suggest that each one of us is experiencing that to some level right now. Maybe there is something specifically traumatizing that has happened to you recently, some suffering that has uniquely gripped your life at this point in time. Or maybe it's just the two years of impending terror and constant social conflict that has wreaked havoc in your heart, sending you into a low-grade depression, emotional malaise. We're all there. We're all suffering in some way. And so this morning, as we experience what happened with Jesus and this blind man thousands of years ago, our prayer should be similar to the prayer that this blind man probably prayed every day. And no doubt his parents prayed over him when he was young, God, open my eyes. That should be our prayer this morning. Open my eyes so that we might see See Jesus in our suffering. See a suffering Jesus so that others might see Jesus in us. Three things for us to see from this passage. Three things we need God to help us see. Three points for us this morning, starting with our ability to see Jesus in our suffering. The disciples' question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was blind from birth? It belies an assumption about God or maybe even the universe that each one of us at some point in our life has bought into. Everything happens for a reason. And so looking at this blind man suffering on the ground, begging every day, there is an assumption that something has gone wrong. Someone has done something wrong to cause this suffering. It's just simple karma. Right? This is the way that the world works. In Judaism, it would have been some form of monotheistic vengeance. God is punishing you for your sin. In the first century, Judaism had a firm link established between suffering and sin. If there was suffering in your life, then you have done something wrong. Or someone, one of your relatives somewhere down the line, had done something wrong, and you are now suffering the consequences of your sin. We believe something similar. It's just the inverse of the achievement model. We talk about achievement often here, and the reality is we live following an achievement model. If I want something good, if I want something happy, some peace, some blessing in my life, I have to work hard to get it. This is just the opposite side of that equation. Something has gone wrong. Something is is broken in me. I must have done something to deserve this. Now, maybe the question you ask in times of suffering is the same question. What did I do to deserve this? 
But I think more often than not, the question is more simple than that. The question is just why? Why is this happening? Why? When I was in seminary, I had to do two residencies as a chaplain at a hospital, one for 24 hours and one for 17 hours. I sat with would-be parents who had lost a pregnancy at 24 weeks. I sat with a family whose mother had died during a routine procedure unexpectedly, a family whose grandfather had been slowly dying over the previous couple of years, and a man whose family never visited him, who the doctors had just told, your body can no longer withstand the cancer treatment, and he was just waiting for the inevitable. And in each of those situations, those people were asking this exact same question, why? Why now? Why us? And to be honest, in my own heart, as the one sitting with them, comforting them, I was asking the same, why? I know you well enough to know that you have, with a broken or confused heart, wondered to yourself or cried aloud this question, why? Maybe it it was because of some disease, some sickness. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. It was a relationship or a lack thereof. I don't think I need to give you examples because I know that you know suffering. You know the question, why? And Jesus here gives us an answer. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says God is working in the midst of this suffering. Now, to be fair and to be theologically accurate, this man was blind as an effect of sin, right? Sin messes everything up. God designed for each child to be born with fully functional sight. But because sin corrupts creation, Something went wrong as he was forming in his mother's womb, and so he was born without the ability to see. But Jesus says, sin's effects are not the end of the story. Even though things have gone wrong, even though these, this family, this man had suffered his entire life, God still works. God uses the effects of sin. My seminary professor talked about it like this, God uses sin sinlessly. God uses sin and its effects sinlessly. It's not that God causes terrible things to happen to people. Sin messes everything up, but God still uses that sinlessly. God uses your suffering to display His works without causing the suffering in your life, but He still uses it sinlessly. Think of the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. His brothers were jealous of him, of the way that their father saw and favored him, and so they beat him up. They sold him to the slave trade. He was taken to Egypt where he was sexually assaulted and falsely accused and thrown in prison. And when he gets the chance to finally see his brothers after years and years, his response to them is, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God uses your suffering 
to display His works. Now, that may or may not be the work of physical healing, but it is definitely His works of grace and faithfulness at the minimum. But let's be real. When you're in the midst of suffering, those words might not be very comforting. It might not be easy to see Jesus in our suffering, at work in our suffering, and so we have to pray for God to open our eyes to the work of Jesus in our suffering. And one of the ways that He does that is by helping us see He suffered too. We need to see a suffering Jesus. Jesus is talking to the disciples about the cosmic work that God is doing in the life of this blind man, and then He switches back into the time and space that they are. He says in verse 4, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, as I said earlier, and if you've read the Gospel of John before, you know that from the very first chapter, John connects Jesus and light, being light in the midst of the darkness. In the previous chapter, Jesus identified Himself as the light of the world, using the I am construct, connecting His own being with the words that God spoke through the burning bush on Mount Sinai to Moses thousands of years before. He said, I am, just like God said. And then He said, the light of the world, divine light in the midst of darkness. That's amazing. How encouraging. How triumphant. But then Jesus adds this weird little Game of Thrones warning, night is coming. What does that mean? Of course night is coming. There's night every day. It happens. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, He says, as long as I am in the world, night is coming. Jesus is telling His disciples that He will not always be around, that His life, His time on earth is going to end. Now, that might not have come as a surprise to them, right, because He's already begun to unmask the plan of the, of the Pharisees saying, you guys are just trying to kill me. He said it several times throughout the gospel already. So they know something is up. But I can guarantee you that no one around Jesus at this time expected Him to suffer the way that He did. I'm sorry to give away the ending of the gospel of John. But throughout the gospel, Jesus, who is God, becomes man, and He lives a perfectly sinless, grace-filled life but he suffers horribly in the end. He is falsely accused and unjustly arrested. His friends abandon him. He is beaten. He is stripped naked. He is nailed to a cross, and he suffers there for three days before he suffocates to death. But then he rises from the dead, alive so that we would know suffering is not the end of the story, so that sin and death do not have the final word. Jesus suffered as we suffer. We need Jesus to open our eyes to the reality that He is a suffering Savior. We need Jesus to lead us to the cross while we are suffering so that we can be near to Him 
and know that He is just like us. Don't forget that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, suffering there, He cried out with the exact same question that you and I ask in the midst of our suffering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? If we see Jesus as only a good teacher, if we see Him as only a good moral example, only a miracle worker, only the victorious one who takes away our sin, we create distance between Him and I. We create distance, especially when our life is hard and it is beating us down. But when we see Jesus on the cross, we see Him like us in our suffering. And when we see Him on the cross, we also come to realize that He is suffering in my place. That should be me up there. He is suffering for me, suffering like me. And to even acknowledge that is God opening our eyes to Him at work in our suffering. Going to the cross and seeing a suffering Jesus opens our eyes to Jesus at work in our suffering. And the result of that is that others begin to see Jesus in us. Others begin to see Jesus in us. This, this miracle that Jesus performs, this sign, uh, as John calls them, is unique in that, yes, it is a supernatural healing, but Jesus invites this man to participate. That sets this apart. Jesus spits in the ground. He makes some mud, and He rubs it on the man's eyes, and He tells him to go wash his face in the pool of Siloam, which John, not so subtly, tells us means sent. Jesus sends him to the pool. He goes. He washes, and He returns, being able to see. And the people around him are all amazed. They're all surprised. And, and it's his neighbors, the people who have seen him on the ground begging every day for some time, perhaps his whole life, they have seen him. They have known him. And he has been blind. And this conversation that ensues is actually really long. It involves his neighbors. They pull his parents in. Jesus is there. The Jewish leaders are there. We're going to talk about all of that next week. But here in this little conversation, between he and his neighbors, something amazing happens. They begin to see Jesus at work in this man's life. This is someone they've known forever, and yet they're not sure that it's still him. Yes, he can now see. He was blind before, but there is something that has changed about him enough for these neighbors to question, is this really the man? Is this really the same guy? Some of them are saying, yeah, clearly it's him. Others say, no, not at all. He kind of looks like him. Verse 9, he kept saying, I am the man. Something has changed enough for him to have to say, no, 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 it is me. And that's an appropriate translation of the Greek. But if we take the actual words in Greek, it would read something different. It says, they kept saying, no, he is like him. But his response was, because I am, because I am. Haughty ego a me, 
the exact same phrase that Jesus uses throughout the Gospel of John to connect himself to the the burning bush on Mount Sinai. This man uses that phrase, because I am. Now, I am not suggesting that that man knew at that point that he should identify his new life, his ability to see this miracle that Jesus had performed in him as new life in Jesus. I'm not saying that he knew to say, Jesus is living in me. But John, the gospel writer, could have used dozens of other Greek phrases to articulate this man's response. But he chose ego eimi, I am, to show his audience and us that there is an immediate connection between a new life a completely changed life, and Jesus, the God-man who has worked that new life in you. This man is new, and he explains it to his neighbors in a much more simple way. The neighbors are confused how then he was able to finally see, and he tells them very exactly what happened. Jesus did something. He spat in the ground. He put stuff on my eyes. He told me to go to the pool to wash, and to come back. And I did those things. All of the focus of this man's recollection of what happened is on Jesus' work, not on his own, but on Jesus' work in his life. He knows to be able to say, I am the one who has suffered. I am the one who was blind from birth. I did nothing about it, but Jesus, the man, Jesus has done something for me miraculously in me. I am He. I am. He proclaims His own weakness and God's strength. In a much similar way, the Apostle Paul declares to the church at Corinth the same reality in his own life. There was something that he was suffering from. Some people think blindness. Some people think it was some besetting sin that was completely destroying his life. And he prays to God to take it away three times. But this is what happens. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my own weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Not only do we need to see a suffering Jesus, to see Jesus at work in our suffering, but we need to understand that as we see those things and as Jesus works in us, people begin to see Jesus in us. His strength, His grace, His love. When we take our suffering to the cross and Jesus who suffered sits there with us and works in us, people begin to see Him instead of us. I've had people tell me that they see Jesus in me and my most broken and most lonely times. I have seen Him in you, in your broken and and lonely and suffering times. I am awestruck sometimes by how clearly Jesus shines and shouts from the lips and hearts of suffering people. I saw him recently 
from a young artist named Nightbird. You may have heard her story. I think I've talked about it before. She is in her 30s. She's suffered from cancer. Her husband left her because he didn't want to deal with all that was going on in her life. But then she went on America's Got Talent, and she sang a song that she wrote herself called It's Okay, made Simon Cowell sob. A song that she wrote herself in the midst of her suffering. She also has a blog. And I wanted to close by reading some of it to you. And I want you to listen, not just to her words describing her suffering, but I want you to listen for Jesus. She writes, I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done wrong to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and I meet with God, that He will say that I disappointed Him, or I offended Him, or I failed Him. Maybe He'll say, I just never learned the lesson, or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, He can never say that He did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise and sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt him exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message that he wrote for me in the grout of my bathroom floor. I'm sad too. Pray with me. God, open our eyes to see you in our suffering. You who willingly suffered for us so that others might see you in us. God, we thank you that you chose to come to live a life marked by suffering. As Isaiah said, you are a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. I pray that that would comfort us, knowing that you know what we're going through, that it would give us hope, because it was in your suffering that you rewrote the ending of our story, that in Jesus' death and resurrection, we know for sure there will be a day when sickness and sorrow and death and destruction and tears are no more when you wipe every tear from our eye because you suffered, we know that is our home. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit now, 
the rest of this week in our lives to be comforted by you, to be strengthened by you. Help us get home. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.